Good morning. It's good to see all of you. We thank you for coming and joining us. Uh, as has already been mentioned, we're grateful for those of you who are here live and in person with us. And we're grateful for all of you who have joined us online again this morning. And the truth is we are very grateful for all of your faithfulness uh, to Ivy Creek uh, throughout all these past uh, going on three months now. And we are very grateful, though, that we have the opportunity to meet together here. But we are also grateful for the technology that allows us to continue to meet together online. And so we are truly thankful uh, for all of you this morning uh, who are worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, take them out. Once again, turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. John chapter 14. And as uh, Pastor Ted mentioned earlier, and as uh, you no doubt know, this is Memorial Day weekend. And uh, tomorrow is Memorial Day. And and uh, it's an interesting thing. Sometimes we, we talk about, you know, we want everyone to have a happy Memorial Day or you want to celebrate Memorial Day. But really, Memorial Day is, is, is really more a day. It's exactly what it says. It's a day of remembrance, less of probably celebration as much as it is of, of somber remembrance, because it is a day that we as Americans set aside for us to recall the sacrifice made by men and women who served in the United States Armed Forces, who gave the ultimate sacrifice of their very lives so that we might be able to experience the freedoms that we enjoy in our country today. And, and so it truly is a, a day to remember that, that axiom that, that is very true uh, throughout all of our lives. That is that freedom is never free. Freedom always costs, and, it, and in some cases it, it costs uh, someone's very life. And that is what Memorial Day is. It's a time for us as Americans to remember those who gave their lives in service of our country. And I think it is also a day that we should stop and express not only our deep gratitude and remembrance of those who died, but our deep gratitude of the Lord, who by His divine sovereignty and according to His good pleasure has, has protected our country and has, and has uh, shown his favor to us in this country in which we live. And so I would certainly encourage you tomorrow as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to stop and to remember those who have fallen uh, in our stead and to also remember the Lord Jesus and the favor and the protection that he has shown to us. You know, on Memorial Day, you might wind up seeing some of this take place. One of the ways that, that we honor uh, those who have died in this country is by how the United States flag is presented on that day. Uh, on Memorial Day, traditionally, the flag is raised very briskly at dawn all the way to the top of the staff. And then it is solemnly, solemnly lowered back down to half-staff position where it will remain until noon. And then at noon, that flag will then be raised once again very briskly to the top of the staff again where it will remain all the way until dusk. And the reason, the symbolism behind that tradition is just this. Um, the half-staff position of the flag is there to remind everyone of those who have given their lives in service of our country. And, and the raising of it, though, from the, from the half-staff position back to the full-staff position at noon represents the solemn vow and the resolve of those who are still alive to never let the sacrifice of those who died be in vain. And it is, a, it is a really a vow to, that, that those who are living state we will continue the fight for freedom and for liberty and justice for all. 
So if you're out and about tomorrow and you may be out before lunch and you see a flag at half staff, you'll know why it's there. And if you drive by that same flag later in the day, you may see it raised at full staff and now you'll know why that change occurs. Now, the reason I bring that to you, not only is just for information, but I think that it makes for a a really good transition into this text that we are going to be looking at this morning from John 14. Let me remind you that some of the same things that that we looked at last week still pervade this week. Last week we looked at John 14 and we knew that there are two commands that Jesus gives that sort of bookend this chapter. The first command comes in verse 1 and in verse 27 and Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And so we recognize that, that that command to have untroubled hearts sort of dominates this entire text. And and Jesus had already told his disciples back in chapter 13 that he was going away. Where he was going, they could not follow him. And that had created great consternation and anxiety in his disciples' hearts. And in the most immediate sense, when Jesus talked about going away, he was discussing, he was really meaning that he was going to the cross. He was going to do something for them that they could not do for themselves. He was going to the cross to suffer and die for their sins. And even though though he would provide the ultimate sacrifice for them, what Jesus wanted them to know, though, was even though his death would come, he would send one, he would send one who would rise up in his stead one who would continue to lead all of them in the way of truth, in the way of righteousness. He would point them in the same direction and he would that the one that Jesus would send would be the guide and the helper that would ultimately cause them to advance the message of the gospel. Now, it doesn't appear that the disciples understood all of that completely as Jesus revealed it to them, but yet we still recognize that Jesus was pointing them to the remedy, the remedy to their troubled hearts. And this morning, what I want us to do is pick up with verse 15. We looked through verse 14 last week. I want us to pick up in verse 15 this morning and read through the end of the chapter. And as we do, what we'll see is that Jesus gives his disciples additional reasons for why they should live with untroubled hearts. Last week, we saw that they should have faith in Christ and their faith would lead them to not having troubled hearts. This week, he picks up on a couple of new things. And so I want us to look at that this morning. Verse 15 Read these words with me. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more. You will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And at that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. 
These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning with humble hearts, grateful hearts for all of the blessings that we have been able to experience at your very hands. We know that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, and it's come down from you. Everything that is in our lives has trickled through your hands, both good and bad, and you use many things in our lives to, to point us back to you and to drive us back to you, and I believe that that is exactly the case. And I pray that this morning as we read your holy word, which you have authored and which you have given to us by divine inspiration, I pray that we would, as we have these Bibles open before us, that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be open. You might be able to speak through your Holy Spirit to us this morning, reminding us of the truth which we have and has been given to us. I pray that would happen for your glory and for our good, and this is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we look at this passage this morning, as I mentioned in our first service and as I wrote in my notes, we could probably just camp out at verse 15 all day. We probably don't need to say a whole lot more. I mean, there's a lot more to be said, but we didn't have to read a lot more than verse 15 to find the conviction of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Let me remind you once again what Jesus says. If you love me, and the ESV probably gets it the best, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, it's a conditional statement that Jesus starts with there. If you love me. And that conditional statement as C.K. Barrett has noted, really is the, the condition that dominates all of verse 1 and verse, or excuse me, verse 15 and verse 16. And it really is the predominant theme that sort of hangs over everything all the way down through verse 21. Consider verse 21 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So there's a common theme that is being thrown at us by Jesus from verse 15 all the way down. And, and if we consider the, the, the implications of, of what Jesus says there, we will certainly understand just how impactful it is. Here's, here's just a few quotes that I wrote down this week to share with you. One of them is this. Based upon what Jesus says here, obedience is the preeminent expression of love for the Lord. Obedience is the preeminent expression of love for the Lord. Here's another quote. Keeping Christ's commandments is the best test of love to Christ. Or what about this one? It's not talking fluently about religion, but steadily doing Christ's will and walking in Christ's ways that is the proof of our being true believers. 
And then I like this one. Love for Christ is not sentimentalism. Nor is it mere lip service. Real love for him is demonstrated by an active, eager, joyful, responsive obedience to his commandments. As I said, we could probably just stay right there all day long and allow the Holy Spirit to just begin to bring to mind the various ways in our lives in which we have not obeyed all of Christ's commandments. Remember the commandment from back in John chapter 13? What the, with the new command that he had given his disciples just probably hours before? This is my commandment that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, Jesus said, so you ought to love one another. So there, the new commandment, the new measure of the commandment was that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ with the same measure of love that Jesus has shown us and that he sacrificed himself in our stead. So there alone, we probably find all places where we can find the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But let's continue because not only did Jesus state it in verse 15, not only did he state it in verse 21, but then as I read for you, he also states it again in verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then he, he kind of states the inverse of that in verse 24. He says, he who does not love me does not keep my word. In other words, one who has no desire to keep the commands of Christ, one who has no desire to please the Lord through living in a, an obedient life, demonstrates that he or she really does not love Christ. Demonstrate that, that they do not belong to the one whom they claim affection for. And these statements by Jesus really had an evidently profound effect on the apostle John because John would go on later when he would write the epistles of John to state some of these very truths again and again and again. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, he says, Those who say, I know him and do not keep his commandments, well, such a one's a liar. He says, the truth is not in him. And then he says in verse 5, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. In 1 John 5, verse 3, John writes, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And then in 2 John verse 6, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. So it's obvious that Jesus points us to the fact that keeping his commandments, living an obedient life is a direct measure of our love for him. It is the way that we can test ourselves and it's the way that we will be tested with regard to our love for our Savior. The interesting thing is, is how does this fit into the context of this scripture? How does it fit here? Why did Jesus introduce this thought of loving obedience here? Well, if we back up just a couple of verses, I think it will make sense because in verses 13 and 14, Jesus has just provided comfort. We looked at these verses last week. Comfort to his disciples by telling them that anything that they ask in his name, and by that he means according to his will, if they ask anything in his name, then he will do it for them. And so if that's the case, then think about what Jesus says then with regard to obedience in verse 15. If we as his disciples are so blessed that we can approach Christ in faith and ask for anything in his name and he will do it, then should we not readily admit that the Lord Jesus should be able to ask anything of us and have us respond in complete obedience to him? I mean, if he binds himself to us, 
should we not also be bound to him in loving obedience to his word? Now, I believe that's how these verses connect. But what I want to do is pull back from that and see how does loving obedience affect us in, in our troubled hearts? Because Jesus talks about this so, so many times here. He's obviously bringing the idea of having untroubled hearts in connection with living an obedient life of love to him. And so what I want us to see is, is, is the first thing on your outline this morning is an important truth that I think we need to recognize. And the first point simply is this. Jesus promises special comforts for those who love him and who prove it by keeping his commandments. He, he promises special comforts for those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, I pointed out to you the issue of keeping Christ's commandments and keeping his word is, is mentioned three times in this passage. And each mention of it, the Lord attaches some special comforts as a result of, of living obediently. For, for the sake of this morning, let's start with the last one and work our way back to the first one. Let's start down in verse 23. In verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, remember, his disciples were truly experiencing anxiety and, and trouble in their hearts because Jesus had announced that he was going away, and where he was going, they could not come with him. But he had comforted their hearts back in the early verses of chapter 14 by saying, but I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And he said, when I go there, I'm, I'm going to the Father's house where there are many rooms, there are many dwelling places, and you will one day be brought there to dwell with me in that place. But now Jesus says here that, that the one who loves him and the one who obeys him well, he along with his father will make their dwelling place with them in their hearts. And so we see what Jesus says here is that he's pointing to the existence of an intimate relationship and a fellowship that will exist between those who love and obey him with himself and with the heavenly father. And I want you to see that that intimacy is further discussed Back in the second mention of loving obedience, back in verse 21. Because there Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And listen, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. I will reveal myself to him. Now, what's interesting is that in the context of verse 21, you have to look back at verse 20. And in verse 20, Jesus has said, the Father's in me and I in him and I will be in you. And so as D.A. Carson has written in verse 21, Jesus really is laying the groundwork for the oneness that would exist between him and his disciples and that that oneness would really mirror the relationship that he had with the Father. In other words, he would have the same kind of intimate relationship with them that he had with his heavenly Father. And all of that is tied to loving obedience. And that brings us then back to the first mention of obedience to his commands in that passage back up in verse 15. Because there, the statement, if you love me, is tied to verse 16. In verse 16, that promise that Jesus says, I will pray that the Father will send you another helper, one who would come alongside his disciples 
to be with them forever. And we're going to look at that more deeply here in just a moment. But the promise of the Holy Spirit in verse 16 to those who love and obey Jesus really, once again, points us to the intimate relationship that will exist between the believer and with God. He's told us that God will make his home in the life of a believer. He's told us that he will further reveal himself in the life of the believer. And now we see that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, will come and be with that believer forever. What a beautiful, intimate relationship is shown to us right here that will accompany those who live lives of obedience. And so these are special comforts that are given to those who live obedient lives. J.C. Ryle has written that the full meaning of all that Jesus says here is a deep truth that is very difficult to fathom and to fully comprehend. He writes this, he says, It is a thing which no man can understand except he that receives and experiences it. But we need not shrink from believing, listen, that imminent holiness brings imminent comfort with it. You catch that? Imminent holiness brings imminent comfort with it. Effectively, that's to say that special comforts come for those who love Christ and who prove it by living obedient lives. Raul goes on to say this. He says, no man has such sensible enjoyment of his religion as those who walk closely with God. If we want to be eminently happy, we must strive to be eminently holy. So, Troubled hearts can be, can be assured that they are, there are special, special comforts that accompany obedience. That's the first thing. The second thing that we recognize from this passage is this. Jesus promises the comfort of the Holy Spirit who will dwell in the lives of believers. That's really verse 16 and following. He promises the comfort of the Holy Spirit to come into the lives and dwell in the lives of those who live holy lives and, and who belong to Christ. Now, as I mentioned, verse 16 is tied to verse 15 with that command. And, and Jesus says this, I'm going to send another helper to you. Now, it's interesting to me, it's significant that we recognize the actual words that are used to describe the one that Jesus says he will send and that the Father will send. In the Greek language, there are two words for the word another. We only have one word in, in English. But there's two words in Greek. The first one is, is heteros. Heteros literally means one of a different kind. But there's another word called alos, and alos in Greek means one of the same kind. And so Jesus is, uses that word. He uses alos, one of the same kind. And so really what he's saying is, I'm going to pray that the Father will send one to you of the same kind as me. Well, but what, what is the kind? The kind of what? Well, that's the second word. It's the word parakletos, which comes from really from two Greek words. One is kaleo, which means to call alongside, and really para is that is to come alongside. So to call alongside, that's, that's the literal interpretation of parakletos. It's what it means. And it's hard to, to put it into English to know exactly what that word means. So sometimes we just take it from Greek and we transliterate it and use it in English. And so we talk about the paraclete. And you, you've probably heard the word used before, the paraclete. Most of the time it's used 
in, in legal terms to describe someone who represents someone else, someone who advises someone else, someone who advocates for someone else. We use that term paraclete. And the reason we do that is because it's someone who comes alongside someone else to support them, to help them, to strengthen them. And that's really what the word comfort means. Really, in, in Latin, it means to, to provide strength for when someone is weak. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside. He is like Jesus in the same kind as Jesus. And He is a helper. He is a comforter. He is a counselor. He is an advocate like Jesus. He is an alos parakletos. Now, what's interesting is that, as John MacArthur has written, Jesus was not just sending any old helper to his disciples. No, he was sending one exactly like himself with the same compassion and the same attributes of deity and the same love for them that he had for them. And I want you to think about that. When Jesus says that he's sending another helper, another one like himself, that means that Jesus himself had functioned in that same role. He too had been a paraclete. As a matter of fact, you realize that's exactly what Jesus continues to do even now. He is our paraclete even now. According to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John writes this, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And listen, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word translated advocate is the same word back here in John 14, parakletos. He is our advocate. He is the one who comes alongside us to help us and to strengthen us and to be our advocate. Now, that promise that Jesus gives here becomes incredibly important to these trouble-hearted disciples because of what he says next. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, when this alos parakletos comes, he will come and be with his disciples forever. I mean, consider the fact that these disciples were troubled because Jesus had said he was going away and he was going to be distant from them and shortly he would depart from them physically. But by sending the Holy Spirit to them, Jesus promised to provide them with one just like him in his essence but distinct from him in his personage and in regard to him being the Spirit, he would be one who would never be absent from them. And he would never allow them to remain without help and without assistance by sending his Spirit. In fact, so beneficial and so pervasive and so unending is the work of the Holy Spirit here that Jesus would go on to say in chapter 16, verse 7, in very, very clear terms, he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So we see the forever aspect of the Spirit's comfort to these disciples in the midst of their trouble. But then we should also note the next important aspect that we learn about the Holy Spirit. Notice the, the term used for him in verse 17. He is referred to as the Spirit of Truth. In fact, Jesus goes on to refer to the Holy Spirit in this term again in, in chapter 15, verse 26, and then another time in chapter 16, verse 13. He's referred to as the Spirit of Truth again and again. And I like how Stephen Cole explains it. Since Jesus is the truth, as he claimed to be back in chapter 14, verse 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Since he is the truth, 
Since in chapter 18, verse, verse 37, he will tell Pilate that he came into the world to testify of truth. Then, as the Spirit of truth whom the Father will send, the Holy Spirit then will testify of Christ's work and will continue to lead us into that same truth. And what all that means is that contrary to the prevailing view of our world today in which the world around us says there's no such thing as an absolute truth, there's no such thing as, as a truth. That, in fact, you can have your truth and I can have my truth and she can have her truth and he can have his. What I want you to know is based upon the scriptures, that's not true. According to the scriptures, as Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 21, truth is found only in Jesus who is revealed in the Spirit-inspired Word of God. And according to what Jesus prays later in John chapter 17, verse 17, He prays, Lord, sanctify them by Your truth. Thy Word is truth. And so the very Word of God is truth. And so those who turn away from truth turn themselves away toward a lie. And so there is an absolute truth, and it rests in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says that those, in Romans 1 verse 25, there are those in this world who exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Certainly that explains why Jesus says that the world cannot receive the Spirit of truth, there in verse 17, because it neither sees Him nor does it know Him. As the scriptures testify elsewhere, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers often appears foolish in the eyes of the world because the natural man has no way to understand spiritual things. But to those who love Christ, to those whose faith and trust are firmly placed in Him, we are given the Spirit to dwell within us and to abide in us and to make His home in us. And as such, He will supply all of our needs and he will lead us into truth until Christ returns. And so Jesus basically tells his disciples, look, I am going away, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will send my spirit to you, and he will testify of me, and my life will become your life. Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. Let me, let me point one final word of comfort that, that we find from the Holy Spirit here to bring trouble, to, to bring peace to our troubled hearts. And and much of the trouble that the disciples experienced came from the fact that they just didn't understand everything that Jesus was saying while they were with him. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. I recall quite a few uh, times in college and in seminary where I was sitting there and there was a professor talking and I knew he was speaking English because I could understand the words that were coming out of his mouth. What I couldn't understand is when he took those words and put them together in a sentence, Something got lost in that translation. I couldn't put them together. I couldn't quite understand everything that he was saying. And might I also say that that's happened to me more than once as a believer. When I've been reading God's Word, you don't have to raise your hands. I'll raise both of mine. I, that, have, do you understand what I mean? That sometimes you're reading God's Word and you're just going, I, I can't seem to grasp everything that's being said there. Let me just give you a little of encouragement this morning is that when we read the scriptures, we see that the disciples had the same issue. There were often times that they were with Jesus and Jesus was speaking and, and they just couldn't get their hands around what it was that Jesus was saying. In fact, later on this same night, this same night in the upper room, Jesus would say to his disciples in chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear it now. 
You're saturated. Anything else I say is just going to run off of you. But here was the, here's the promise. However, he says, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. In other words, though the disciples were still confused by everything that Jesus was saying, though they couldn't quite make sense of all of it, they could take comfort in the fact that the Spirit of God would continue to instruct them and make things plain. In fact, note back in verse 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And John has already told us that this has happened. In fact, when John wrote the gospel, the Spirit had already come and caused him to remember a lot of things. And not just him, but the other disciples. You want proof of it? John chapter 2. It was in John chapter 2 that Jesus said, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And everybody was like, what in the world is he talking about? How could that possibly be true? Even his disciples didn't understand it. But then in verse 22 of John chapter 22, notice what John says. When he had risen from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. In John chapter 12, when Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem on that final trip in there on his grand triumphal entry, the Bible tells us that, that Jesus riding that donkey was the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. But his disciples, according to verse 16, did not understand these things at first. But... When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written about him and that they, they had done these things to him. How did they remember him? How did they come to understand these things that had happened before? It was because the promise of Jesus here in verse 14, in chapter 14, came about. The Holy Spirit came. And the remembrance that came into their lives was a result of the divine work of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, instructing them, causing them to remember all that Jesus had taught them. And I want you to know that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And he causes these disciples to remember all that Jesus had said and had taught. And it has a further dimension that impacts us. You see, as MacArthur has written, the primary import of the promise of the Holy Spirit is that he would enable these disciples to recall the words of Jesus that he had spoken to them so that when they recorded them as Scripture, the words would be perfect and error-free. This, he writes, is the promise of divine inspiration. You see how important this promise here becomes for me and you? You see, in the midst of our troubled lives, in the midst of the times when our hearts are troubled and we don't know exactly which way to turn, we have some wonderful promises of, of Christ here. Number one, that we have God's holy word that he has authored and has divinely inspired that we can go to. God has not left himself without a witness. He has given it to us through his divinely inspired word. Not only that, but we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit to come alongside us, to help us to understand these words, to, to bring to our understanding how we can put these things into practice and to, to fully be able to comprehend them. So when you, like me, come to passages of Scripture that are, that are really a tough nut to try to crack and you can't find to get, you know what's the best thing to do is, Holy Spirit, give me understanding because that's exactly what He has come to do and what Christ promises that He will do. And we can thank Him that we have this word 
as a result of what Jesus said would happen here in John 14. So, we have this word that is active and it's alive and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and is to the piercing of, of the soul and the spirit to the joints and the marrow. And that is a true blessing. So, so what we've seen so far is that Jesus promises special comforts to those who love him and who prove it by keeping his commandments. And he promises the comfort of the Holy Spirit who will dwell in the lives of believers. And then that brings us to the last point. The last point on your outline this morning is this. Jesus promises his lasting legacy of peace. His lasting legacy of peace. Notice again those well-known words of verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, in light of the fact that he's leaving his disciples, he's already promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, here he bequeaths to them not just the Holy Spirit, but he bequeaths peace. And not just any peace. His peace. It's important to understand. He is giving them the same. Jesus is facing what will certainly be a horrible night of being arrested, betrayed, beaten, stretched out on a cross, cruelly murdered. And yet he's able to face it with a resounding resolve. He has peace, even though what he faces is horrible. And how can he have it? He says here, I will give you the same peace that I have. Leon Morris notes that while we usually think of peace as an absence of conflict, the idea of peace, or shalom in Greek, or excuse me, in Hebrew, meant something far greater than just, just that. It, it meant the rich blessings and the flourishings that come from living in harmonious peace with God. In fact, D.A. Carson notes that rather than peace merely being defined as the, the calming of turmoil, or the soothing of our souls in the midst of anxious personal troubles and strife, the biblical idea of peace is one of the fundamental characteristics of the Messianic kingdom, anticipated in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. Now, if that's the case, that's the reason why we realize that the world can never offer us that kind of peace. The world can never provide us that because it has no ability to do so, particularly in light of the fact that it does not it does not see him. It does not know him as we read there in verse 17. Nor does it love him as Jesus refers to in verse 24. It's important that we recognize that this lasting legacy that Jesus gives to his disciples is peace. It's, it's not money. You notice that? His lasting legacy is not worldly ease. The lasting legacy he gives to his followers are not temporal prosperity. In fact, J.C. Ryle notes that such things are at best very questionable possessions because they often do more harm than good by acting as clogs and weights to our spiritual life. But the inward peace of conscience arising from a sense of pardoned sin and reconciliation with God is a far greater blessing. The peace is the prosperity of all believers, whether high or low, rich or poor. Now, certainly we have to say that's the objective peace that we have. It's an objective peace. It's available to any and to all who will by faith come to the Lord 
and humble themselves before Him and repent of their sins and peace then is made between them and God through what Jesus Christ has done. That is the objective nature of peace. But certainly what, what Christ talks about here in this passage, this peace that He gives to His, to his followers is more of a subjective peace. In other words, we can have peace with God and the peace that we have with God issues forth in the peace of God. And the peace of God is what, as MacArthur says, is an experiential peace. It's a tranquility of the soul. It's a settled positive peace that, that thrives regardless of life's circumstances. Really, that's exactly what Jesus was able to have in light of what was about to occur for him. And for us, it's the kind of peace that we have because we live in light of the knowledge of Romans 8, verse 32, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also with him freely give us all things. It's the kind of peace that Philippians 4, 7 talks about. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a supernatural peace that comes from God that cannot be concocted on our own, nor can it be stirred up by the sheer force of human will. It is Christ's gift to His people. So therefore, what we learn is that our Lord's lasting legacy of peace, it is that that offers us the remedy to our troubled hearts. It's a remedy that is also brought about through the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promises to dwell in the lives of believers. And then he provides those who love him and prove it by keeping his commandments with special comforts of intimate fellowship with Christ forever. And then all of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence. And I'll use the same word with you in this service that I did in the first one. Taking all that and squashing it together into one word, into one sentence. Squashing is a good word. You ought to use it. It's, it's from my North Hall heritage. So here you go. Untroubled hearts enjoy a supernatural peace resulting from the intimate fellowship they have with Jesus through the indwelling Holy Spirit whom Jesus promises to those who love and obey Him. And brothers and sisters, if you can really get your minds around that, and I want you to know it's a tough one to try to get your mind completely around, but if you can, oh, what comfort that can bring to your troubled hearts. In the final verses of this text, I just want you to note, Jesus says once again, he's leaving, he's going away. And then he tells them, if you loved me, you'd be glad that I was going away. Now I want you to know that's a chide. He's chiding his disciples there. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I was going away. How could he make such a statement as that? Well, he's saying, look, as he, as he says there, he says, the Father is greater than I. That doesn't mean that the Father in some way is a, is a greater being as some, as some have taken that to mean. Absolutely not. What he's saying is, because I have left my position and I have come down to this earth to serve in such a, a, a servant role and left everything behind that was rightfully mine as the second person of the Trinity in order to come here to suffer on your behalf, if you understood everything that I had turned away from in order to come for your benefit, you would be glad on my behalf. 
for my part, that I would ascend back to my Father, back to the right hand of God, my rightful place, to have all the glory that was rightfully mine, where all of my deity would be completely, and, and the divine attributes could be fully exercised. And as Carson has put it, he says, if these disciples had truly loved Jesus, they would have perceived that his departure to his own home was his gain and rejoiced with him at the prospect. As it is, their grief is an index of their self-centeredness. And here we get the sense that Jesus is longing for that day. He's longing for that opportunity because he knows that his mission on earth is almost over. And he knew that Calvary's cross was in, form, in, in, in front of him. In fact, in verse 30, he says, the ruler of this world is coming. And we know the ruler of this world had already impacted Judas to betray him. And Satan had enlisted every force that he could to cause Jesus' death. But Jesus says this, he declares definitively, he has nothing in me. In other words, Satan would never be able to conquer him. Satan would never be able to defeat him. And so Christ went obediently to the cross. Notice, I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. And what I want you to know is that Jesus came to accomplish the mission of obeying His heavenly Father and sacrificing Himself in order to redeem sinners like you and me, lost men, women, boys, and girls, who will by faith place their trust in Him. And here's what I want you to know. If you really want to experience untroubled hearts, your peace will start right there. It starts by you recognizing that Christ came to provide peace with God. He did that by suffering in your place on the cross. And right where you are at home, let me say this to you today. If you have never come to have peace with God, then troubled hearts will be all you will ever know. But the scriptures offer peace to everyone who will by faith receive the gift that Christ offers through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. And so right where you are, if you, if you will stop what you're doing and if you would just pray, if you would admit that you are a sinner, if you would come to that place and, and recognize that you need the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, right where you are, if you will ask him to do that, he will. I want you to know there is no other name given among men by which we may be saved than that name of Jesus Christ. So if you will confess him as your Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus will come and be your Savior and then all of the comfort and all the peace of God opens up for you. If you have prayed that prayer, if you would like to know more about that, if you would like a pastor to pray with you, here's what I want you to do. They're going to put the phone number up again on the screen. Would you please call it? Would you call and leave a message for us? One of the pastors here will get back in touch with you. We want to be able to pray with you. We want to be able to explain to you everything that goes into being able to, to know what it means to become a follower of Christ and what the next steps should be. I hope and pray that you will do that today. There's also a, spirit, a, a, a response card that they'll give you the opportunity to, to link onto there where you can type that out and send it. We'll be glad to, to respond to you that way as well. To the rest of you who... This is your testimony, that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question that I have for you this morning, do you have troubled hearts? There are many things in our world today that can create that trouble for us. We could spend all afternoon trying to identify what they are. Here's what I want you to know. What I want you to know is this. Christ offers us assurance. The assurance of His love and the everlasting presence of His Holy Spirit through us. 
And when he said that he would never leave us nor forsake us, he meant exactly that. And he has gifted us with a helper to come alongside us and to strengthen us, an advocate who will plead our case and provide us with counsel. We must not let our hearts be troubled nor be afraid because his Holy Spirit testifies that because we have peace with God, we may also have the peace of God. And when we truly come to understand that, we will know the remedy of our troubled hearts. Brothers and sisters, this is yet another lesson from the upper room, and it is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for loving us as you do. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to open your holy word and to read it and to be comforted by it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to recall, even this week, the things that we have studied and learned and committed to memory this morning and help us to be able to apply them directly to our lives. We ask for that work to continue. And we pray that it would do so for your glory and for our good in Christ's name.